0: This is the InFocus podcast from The Hindu. Hello and welcome to the InFocus podcast. This is G Sampath, your host for today's episode. The welfare of convicts who have been sentenced to death is probably the last, if at all, it figures in anyone's list of welfare priorities. Since their entire identity tends to get reduced to one act, the crime they are accused of, They are generally dehumanized and people find it difficult to understand why we should care about the mental health of someone convicted of, say, gang rape or a brutal murder, the rarest of rare cases where the death penalty is invoked. But there are problems in the way the criminal justice system deals with the mental health of under trials and prisoners and perhaps nobody is more victimized by systemic issues than prisoners on death row. A new report titled Deathworthy – A Mental Health Perspective of the Death Penalty has come up with empirical data on mental illness and intellectual disability among death row prisoners in India. The study, which is the first of its kind, has found that an alarming 62% had a mental illness and 11% had intellectual disability. Given that most of these convicts are from marginalized communities with poor socio-economic and educational indicators, The report raises some hard questions about equity, justice and the responsibility of the courts, the prison system, the state and also the society at large towards protecting the dignity of those deemed death-worthy. To tell us more about the report and the issues it covers, we have with us Dr. Maitri Mishra of National Law University Delhi. Maitri is the founder of Project 39A at NLU which aims to encourage new conversations on Legal Aid, Torture, Forensics, Death Penalty and Mental Health in Prisons. She is also the project head and lead author of this study. Uh, Maitri, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Sampat. Thank you so much for engaging with the report and having me over on this podcast.
0: Uh, Maitri, just to start off with a, a very generic question. I happen to mention this study that you've done to a few of my friends And most of them are like, you know, upper-middle class, well-educated people. And the most common response from them was a mix of bafflement and amusement. They are like, look, these prisoners are anyway headed to execution. How does it matter what their mental health is, given that they have been legally and justly consigned to a fate worse than the worst mental illness? I mean, these are typical responses uh, from many people. So as the lead author of this report, how would you respond to this?
1: Right. It is It is quite a typical response. And I think what's important for us to keep in mind, though, is, is that in any system, there are certain rules of the game. And in our system, those rules are largely set out by the Constitution. And those rules pertain to the duties of the state and the rights of citizens, uh, rights of people staying in India. And I think if we look at what happens to the mental health of death row prisoners from that lens, from a constitutional perspective, that then becomes important uh, to understand that when there is a mental health crisis among death row prisoners or even one death row prisoner is suffering from a mental illness or any other mental health concern, how should then the state respond to that? When the Constitution promises a life of dignity and when you have Supreme Court jurisprudence promising that dignity to death row prisoners, then the conversation changes. Then it becomes about how is the state going to uphold that dignity? And I think that's the important part that we need to uh, focus on. Uh, And that's why the mental health of death row prisoners matters, because it leads to questions of accountability and responsibility of the state
0: right i mean yeah it's it's important that we keep in mind the constitution and what it says in terms of dignity and justice and rights even for death row prisoners we'll come back to that in a bit before that can you give us a quick overview of the major findings of this uh, empirical study and this report
1: right this report is both uh, quantitative as well as qualitative uh, in nature and in terms of the quantitative findings Uh, One of the most startling findings was on adversities that prisoners have faced as children and as adolescents uh, called adverse childhood experiences. And we found that of the prisoners, of the 88 prisoners we interviewed, 73 prisoners had experienced three or more adverse childhood experiences. So that was quite startling. We knew that there uh, there was a certain kind of violence in their life. Uh, as children but that these many would have similar kinds of violence was a bit startling actually
0: by adverse childhood experience do you mean uh, abuse or neglect or just violence
1: yes what we what we mean by adverse childhood experience and what is understood as in psychological literature are issues of childhood neglect childhood abuse substance use by parents running away from home bullying Uh, All of these are adversities and they're considered adversities because they have long-term consequence both for social outcomes as well as health outcomes. So the more you are exposed to adversities as a child, the more likely you are to have a health problem later in life and also engage in violent behavior later in life. So that was one uh, finding. The other was on mental illness like you mentioned that Again, we knew that there has to be a mental health crisis, then we will find a mental health crisis. But again, we didn't quite know that 62.2% of them will have at least one mental illness. And the major mental illnesses that we found were major depressive disorder, uh, which 30 prisoners were found were diagnosed with anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, which was at 19 prisoners and substance use disorder uh, with 18 prisoners we also found six prisoners who were screened for psychosis in addition we found that a large number of them had thought about suicide uh, at least once during their time in prison and 50% of the prisoners who had thought about it had gone on to attempt suicide the other uh, important finding was on intellectual disability that Of the 83 prisoners who agreed to get the assessment done, nine were diagnosed with intellectual disability. That puts it at around 11%. And it's important to know it's concerning this finding because in the general population, the figure is around 0.6. But in death row population, it becomes much, much higher. And Another important finding that I think we need to keep in mind while reading the report or while discussing the death penalty is that 60% of the prisoners, by the time the report was released, 60% of the prisoners we interviewed were either acquitted or they had their sentence commuted. So when we talk about the death penalty, that's the outcome that we need to keep an eye on, that people get acquitted, people are wrongly convicted and people are wrongly given the death sentence, and it's often reduced. But it is, of the 60% of the prisoners, almost all of them had a mental health concern. So there are there is a certain cost that we should talk about at some point, yeah.
0: Right. You, you spoke about the prevalence of depression, of generalized anxiety disorder, substance abuse, even psychosis and suicidal tendencies, all of which are very serious illnesses. And in, in your report, you also divide the legal context of mental illness into uh, pre-sentencing and post-sentencing stages. So how would you characterize the approach of uh, the criminal justice system towards the mental health of these people? Because I, mean, there, I understand that I mean, the, the one thing which lay persons know when it comes to mental health and criminal justice is the insanity defense. But apart from that, very little is known. How does this affect how they are treated before sentencing and how they are treated after they have been sentenced. Is the fact that if you take the case of death row prisoners. This high 62% of prevalence. Is it the fact that they were already suffering from the mental illness. Which sort of predisposed them towards a serious crime. Or is it that they developed this mental illness. Uh, because of being sentenced to death. I mean how do we understand this whole scenario.
1: Right. Okay. So I am going to try and answer it as try not to complicate it too much, let me put it that way. So when it comes to mental health or mental illness and intellectual disability, criminal law does keep that in mind when when the trial is being conducted. For instance, criminal law provides for a fitness assessment, a competence assessment where a person or the accused person is to be checked whether they are fit to stand trial, whether they are in a mental state and of a Certain level of cognitive ability to stand trial and understand the trial process and evidence against them. The second is like you said, uh, the insanity defense, where the question of mental illness or unsoundness of mind, as is referred to in criminal law, whether that played a role or whether that gave rise to a certain behavior of the person as a consequence of which that they don't understand the nature or consequence of their actions. So that's the insanity defense, it has to be at the time of the offense and it should be such, the mental illness should be such that the person is unable to understand the nature and consequence of their action. Now we come to the sentencing part and the post-sentencing part. The post-sentencing law is most developed in the death penalty context, so I will speak about that. At the sentencing stage, when a judge is giving the punishment, mental illness does play a role. But what exactly is that role and what is the rationale is something that is not very clear in law. Why in certain cases should a person be not given the maximum punishment that the judge might be able to give by virtue of mental illness? Is it because they are going to suffer more in prison? Is it because it's that the insanity defense is not proved, but we will not give you the death sentence. What is that rationale? right? That is not very clear. Now, once you have sen- you've been sentenced to death, there are multiple stages still to remain. Uh, and in 2019, the Supreme Court said that if there is a mental illness, a severe mental illness, after the person has been sentenced to death, while they are serving their time on death row, if the person has a severe mental illness, such as schizophrenia, The punishment has to be commuted. And the rationale they gave, the judges gave at that time, was that the person may not understand the nature and purpose of the punishment itself. In 2014, the Supreme Court once again said that, and this was the first time that it made such a clear articulation, that insanity is a factor which warrants commutation of the death sentence, right? Uses insanity and mental illness interchangeably. And then another Part where mental health of the prisoner is in a very humane jurisprudence that the court has developed is once the person has filed their mercy petition and say the petition has been rejected because of after a long, long time. So on grounds of delay, the court has looked at mental and emotional agony of the person while awaiting a decision from the president. And in the report, that is one of the things that we do to try and understand what is this mental agony. And when does this mental agony and emotional agony and the dehumanization? When does it start? That was a long answer, but I hope that was clear.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that really does clear up quite a few things. So, you, so broadly speaking, I understand that uh, mental illness in a in a prisoner or in a death row prisoner is grounds for some kind of. Uh, a humane approach. And you in this context, you speak of mitigation, it's supposed to be a mitigating factor. Yeah. So how does this mitigating factor actually work out in practice? Does it really kick in or is it more in the, in the letter and not in practice?
1: Right. So that's a complicated scene on mitigation in India. So let me just explain what mitigation is first. So mitigation is the Approach the law has taken to understand death row prisoners or persons who are being sentenced to death before the judge actually imposes the punishment. There is an obligation on the court to understand the context of the person before they sentence them to death, and the death sentence can be given only in the rarest of the rare cases and where the question of life imprisonment is, as the court calls it, unquestionably foreclosed. Now, in mitigation, you are supposed to, when, when I say you, I mean the judge, uh, the judge is meant to look at the context of the person, its individualized sentencing, and the context of the person pre-offense is the main thing that the court looks at. The court also looks at questions of probability of reformation as a mitigating factor, and other mitigating factors that the court has looked at is, for instance, socioeconomic circumstance, the age of the accused, family dependence, uh, conduct in prison. These are the kinds of things and mental illness and mental health is one of these factors. Uh, The emotional and mental state of the person at the time of offense. So these are the different kinds of factors. Now in practice what happens a lot of the time is that the idea of contextualizing the accused is not undertaken. The court lists Certain factors, they will be presented with certain mitigating factors. In many cases, and because we also represent death row prisoners, we know that to be true, that in many cases, the mitigating factors are not even presented to court. And mitigating factors pertaining to mental illness, intellectual disability, are very, very rarely brought to the notice of the court. And the reason for that is lawyers rarely meet these prisoners, right? Their lawyers have rarely met them. They meet them in maybe in court or and for five minutes maybe, right? Now, questions of mental illness and intellectual disability are very difficult questions to answer. They're also difficult for people like lawyers to detect. You need a system which allows people skilled in that knowledge to be able to diagnose somebody with mental illness or intellectual disability so that the lawyer can then present it to court. But we don't have a system like that courts can call for, say, a probation officer's report, right? But what do we actually try and look at? Like the report says, before sentencing somebody to death, the judge at the court is required to look at, as a principle of equity, right? Equity and justice, like you said early on, uh, to look at the whole story of the prisoner. But in practice, that story is rarely told in court. It's almost become like a checklist that is presented to court and tick, 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 measure it against the crime and then you come to a conclusion. Um, So in practice, it doesn't happen very well. In what we are trying to do is to say, get social workers, get sociologists involved in legal representation because that is the only way you can actually do that searching inquiry that mitigation is meant to be and present it to court for the court's consideration. Uh, so that is briefly what mitigation is.
0: Yeah, your report makes a reference to this, something called same-day sentencing. and all. Can you elaborate a bit on what the controversy around that is?
1: Right. So in our legal system, the punishment is given after you are found guilty. It's a logical thing to do, of course. But when it says there should be a separate sentencing, What it has been interpreted to mean in the death penalty context is that this separate sentencing is so that you can collect and present materials in court about the accused. Now, oftentimes, the sentence is passed on the same day as conviction. So if I am held guilty today, uh, the judge might very well say, we'll do a separate hearing, but that hearing will happen two hours from now. So that's same day sentencing. When you are sentenced to death the same day, you are held guilty. Now the problem with that is, where is the time for the lawyer to even present a defence uh, on sentencing? To present mitigating factors, to to give effect to the requirement of the law that a whole searching inquiry to be done to be presented. If same day in same day sentencing, you don't have an opportunity for that. Not just same day sentencing. Uh, even if the sentencing is a day later, you don't really have enough time to conduct that kind of exercise and present that kind of evidence before on sentencing to court. Now, the controversy is that in some cases, the Supreme Court has said same day sentencing, uh, even if the person is sentenced to death on the same day, the Supreme Court can rectify that error by calling for evidence at the appellate stage. But sentencing also needs to be understood as a fair trial right, right? That it's not just conviction that is a trial. Sentencing is also trial. And we need to start looking at sentencing as a fair trial, right? And to say, why should the court not send it back to the trial court for re-evaluation of evidence? Uh, those are questions that have not found answers. And in some cases, courts may send it back. But more and more, the courts take it upon, the Supreme Court takes it upon itself to rectify the error of same-day sentencing on its own rather than sending it back to the trial court, the court of first instance.
0: Right, right. Uh, one of the things you've, uh, you've spoken about quite frequently in the report as well as uh, in this conversation is this concept of intellectual disability, uh, which is something we don't often hear of in the in the broader uh, legal discourse, uh, uh, legal discourse in the mainstream. So, what what exactly does intellectual disability mean? And is it is it as serious? Is it to be treated on a par with a physical disability?
1: Right. So, intellectual disability is uh, like an olden, if you look at common law and like really early on, is what the law would refer to as idiot. And of late, then it became mental retardation. Now, the term is intellectual disability. Now, intellectual disability is a developmental disorder. So, it The onset of the disability is in the developmental period, which now people studying the disability are saying is up to 22 years. And what the disability does is that it, the inherent nature of the disability is that it creates limitations in intellectual functioning and adaptive behavior. So intellectual functioning would be things like reasoning, judgment formation, uh, analyzing risk in social situations. And adaptive behavior is how well you adapt to your social surrounding and how well you interact with and navigate the world around you independently. And intellectual disability creates barriers and deficits in both these domains of functioning. Now, should it be treated at par with physical disability, it should be treated in a completely different light. The reason for that is that, like I said, intellectual disability creates barriers in judgment formation it creates barriers in assessing risk it creates barriers in in sort of navigating the world around you and it makes the person extremely gullible right now all of these are things that need to be considered when you are saying how responsible are you are you s- responsible enough for a certain act to be sentenced to death right and the question of responsibility is on whether you understood uh, what you did was right or wrong why it was right or wrong whether you can whether you had the skills to make a make the judgment that a certain action can lead to say somebody's death or a certain kind of violence so being inherent traits of the disability i would argue that the death sentence should not even be imposed on them that it should not even be an option it's not just me right international human rights law says that persons with intellectual disabilities should not be given the death sentence. Even the US, which has really bad death penalty law and really bad criminal justice system, bad I mean in the sense it's very harsh, even there, persons with intellectual disability cannot be executed, cannot be sentenced to death. But in India, even though we have a high percentage on death row, there is absolutely no conversation on how will Indian death penalty jurisprudence deal with questions of intellectual disability. It's never been brought to the notice of court. And the reason is, like I said earlier, you don't have people who can actually detect the disability, diagnose the disability, so you don't go searching for it. You don't go looking for it. But it's there. It's a serious lapse, a serious gap in our death penalty jurisprudence, which in many ways is quite advanced and humane. Uh, But this is something that is of major concern that we just don't know who we are sentencing to death.
0: Right. When you just mentioned that there's hardly any conversation on intellectual disability uh, uh, in India, even though uh, in in, in other countries with even more harsh regimes of death penalty, you cannot sentence uh, someone with intellectual disability to death. Now, another thing which we uh, don't really talk about is how the prison system appears to uh, discriminate against death row prisoners not by default or because of individual prejudices but almost as a matter of official policy and that is what I understand from the report. Now, w- why is this the case? And you also, uh, sort of, the report talks about mental pain of death row prisoners right. uh, after they get to know that they are headed for execution. So, why why is this uh, discrimination almost like a policy and, and uh, how do we understand this whole phenomenon?
1: Right. So, the institutional discrimination that is there for death row prisoners includes things like not being allowed to work not being allowed education not being able to uh, not being able to sometimes interact with other prisoners and the idea is to keep them separate not have them engage with prison life in some documents you will find the reasoning as it is for the good of the person itself because they might be susceptible to harm from other harm and violence from other inmates. But that's a sort of a warped logic because you're you you are disadvantaging the death row prisoner because of harm that you you as the state need to prevent. But the idea is to keep them separate so that they can be protected. What ends up happening however is that this kind of institutional discrimination does bleed into Individual interactions and individual prejudices. So you find narratives of prisoners who 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 don't talk to other prisoners because they are they know that they are being looked at a certain way, but only because they are on death row. There's no other reason. It's it's the moment because you see when you are an undertrial prisoner, you are living with everyone else, and suddenly you go from an undertrial prisoner who was like everyone else to now a death row prisoner. Some someone who's committed the worst offence, worst offence possible. And that change in status is what leads to these sort of individual uh, prejudices setting in. The institutional discrimination sets in at that time. And it creates an environment of, how do I say this? It creates an environment where the person is alone. No one is talking to them. Nobody is believing them. And they are now sitting alone, without having any opportunity to engage with anyone around them, engage with themselves, ruminating about what is going to happen to them.
0: Right. One of the things uh, which struck me when I was reading uh, this section is, is is a number of uh, I mean the excerpts on the interviews where they talk, where the prisoner talks about. Uh, being in solitary confinement for extended periods of time now, solitary confinement I think is universally recognized as as a means of torture. Yeah, I mean, if if somebody's already uh, been given the punishment of death penalty, uh, to sort of as a matter of policy put them in solitary confinement, like how is there uh, a justification for this? Because this this is tantamount to additional punishment, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and, and our Supreme Court has held the same, that you can't put prisoners in solitary confinement, you can't put death row prisoners in solitary confinement, that is torture that creates a certain uh, mental state of, and the court calls it insanity, uh, and it's overall very, very debilitating. In recent times, and in the project, what we found was that certain prisoners, some in some prisons, the prisoners were not being put in solitary anymore because the jail was aware that, they are not meant to be put in solitary confinement. Uh, so they were, at some point, they might have been living in solitary confinement, but at the time of our interviews, they were not living in solitary confinement anymore. But that's in only in some prisons. Uh, in other prisons, the practice of solitary confinement does continue. And in, in law, you can only be put in solitary confinement after the president has rejected your mercy petition. But... The precedent rejection can happen even before the person has exhausted all their remedies also. So people end up spending extended periods of time. We have, we interviewed a prisoner who has now spent more than 14 years in solitary confinement. He's staying alone with no interaction with anyone else. What is that doing to that prisoner's mental health? We also know that the prisoner started having psychotic episodes in solitary. So... Some prisons are sort of aware that this is not to be done, this is unlawful, but some prisons continue that practice and it's extremely, extremely debilitating. The narratives are, uh, like one prisoner talks about how he was in solitary confinement and when he got out, when he was going to court and he was talking in court, he thought that the voice was coming from somewhere else. And in some prisons, when, when I say solitary confinement, I also mean that it's a... Really small, limited space, an 8 by 8 room and it's all dark. You can't see, you can't hear another person, uh, you can't talk to another person. So it's extremely segregated and separate confinement where you can't see, where you can't hear another person, uh, where you can't interact with another person. And once you are in solitary, you get maybe two hours or three hours out of that cell. The whole day you have to spend inside that cell alone.
0: Right, but even when they are not in solitary confinement, I mean, it's not particularly easy uh, or much easier for them, right? Because the the regime of discrimination, as it were, is is so harsh. I mean, they they get, they get uh, taunted by other prisoners. There is verbal torture. Then they physically they get uh, beaten uh, by other prisoners or bullies in the prison.
1: Yeah, it would be a mistake to think solitary confinement is the only problem. The kind of Violence that prisoners, death row prisoners go through from prison authorities, from, their, from inmates, also needs to be looked at. Like, for instance, we found that uh, violence from prisons and harassment by prison authorities and harassment by prisoners was correlated with mental illness. Uh, we also found that social isolation, that is that people not talking to them, them not being able to interact with people uh, or their families, was also correlated to mental illness.
0: Just to unpack this uh, this correlation uh, to mental illness. So, so if I if I understand this right, you are saying basically that a a person who suffers severe violence uh, in his uh, before coming to during his developmental stage, like I said, during his teens or uh, childhood, could develop mental illness. And B, if a person entering prison enters the prison as a mentally sound person, the kind of extreme traumatic violence he or she is inflicted on by prison authorities could by itself, push him into mental illness. Is that right?
1: Yes, yes, that is exactly right. There are certain prisoners who might come with a pre-existing mental illness. But we know that conditions of death row confinement and death row incarceration are such that they increase the chances that the person is going to get a mental illness and that's what we found. That conditions peculiar to death penalty, peculiar to death row incarceration, lead to the onset of mental illness while they are on death row. One of the reasons, one of the ways to look at this is that these are prisoners who have gone through life and have become vulnerable to mental illness. And then you sentence them to death, which is an additional traumatic experience, right? So you are pushing them into a mental state, which is very, very likely to then lead to a mental illness. So their whole lives is sort of a trauma.
0: Right. So taking a step back from the prisoners themselves, Can you talk a little bit about the impact on the family of the prisoner, on their prisoners' uh, children? And how easy or difficult was it to get uh, the prisoners and their families to uh, take part in this study?
1: Right. So, it was a mix. Uh, For families, it was more difficult for us to convince the families than the prisoners themselves. Uh, The reason for that, I suspect, is that prisoners, they don't have anyone to speak to people don't come generally to talk to death row prisoners. Uh, And particularly, they are not sort of people we believe. And as interviewers, as researchers, that was our responsibility. That was our ethical obligation to sort of listen to them without prejudice, to let them talk, to believe certain experiences that they've had that everyone else has denied. The difficulty with prisoners, however, was that a lot of them wanted to only talk about their case. And we were not interested in that legal part. We were interested in their life. So that was a bit of a difficulty. With families, I think the major reason for the difficulty setting in was that they were extremely suspicious of people coming to talk to them because a vast majority of them have had this experience that people would speak to them, the media would speak to them and then publish sensationalized stories about them or the person uh, who's on death row and that suspicion was very, very uh, difficult to break through. Now, in terms of the impact on families, the impact starts from many times the time of a arrest. Families have to move houses and these are houses that they've been staying in for decades and generations. They have to move houses overnight, leaving everything behind, leaving all your memories, all your things behind and set up a life elsewhere they have to uh, hide the identity particularly children they hide the identity don't reveal who they are to the new surroundings so they're living two different worlds one inside the house one outside the house i think an important part that we don't sort of we haven't really found solutions to in the law is how do we explain to them the nature of the the loss that they are suffering many many families talked about the fact that it's very difficult to understand what is happening they have a person who's on death row who might die but he's also alive he or she and that kind of loss where you don't know what is going to happen uh, but you have to continue living your life as if they were dead but they are still alive we refer to that as ambiguous loss where you don't quite know what the fate of that person is and we also found that families did not have a sp- Any space for actually mourning that loss, uh, to grieve, to feel everything that one would feel if a loved one were taken away. They don't have that space because people around them would be a question, who are you grieving? Because remember, they have now new identities. So they don't, they have to leave that person, that their loved one outside of any conversation. Uh, So who are you grieving? But also why are you grieving a person who is sentenced to death? They are the worst kind. Uh, And we don't give space for that. So that itself creates a, I would say, a mental health crisis. But I think we need to pay special attention to children of prisoners, uh, of death row prisoners, what is happening to them. Because the death penalty has an intergenerational impact. And children become the most vulnerable targets of that, of the punishment. And we don't have conversations about what are If we execute a parent, what are the children going to do? How is it going to affect the child? Uh, And I think that's a serious conversation that needs to be had a lot more.
0: Right. The intergenerational uh, dimension of uh, the death penalty is something we definitely haven't really been talking about uh, much and we should. Now, going on to another very uh, important aspect which struck me, of the 88 prisoners in your study 19 were acquitted that is they were found to be innocent after being sentenced to death uh, which is really uh, something uh, something really mind-boggling and at the interim period they have developed a mental illness so is there any mechanism available uh, for them for redress or compensation for all the unjust suffering that they had to undergo
1: no there isn't there is no formal institutionalized mechanism where the person is compensated for the number of years that have been taken away from them in such misery of living on death row. But courts have in few, few cases provided compensation, but that's on the discretion of the court. So for instance, a few years ago, there were four people who were acquitted by the Supreme Court after having spent 16 years on death row. And they were very, very close to execution. It was a complicated legal situation, but uh, they were found innocent. And the court then ordered for compensation, for the state to provide compensation to them up to 5 lakhs. But there is no formal mechanism, for not just compensation, there is no formal mechanism for rehabilitation, there is no formal mechanism for providing them resources to reintegrate into society. Many of these prisoners have spent very, very long in prison.
0: Or a, or a mechanism for accountability. I mean, is there no accountability for it? Shouldn't somebody be... So shouldn't somebody pay for book because this is as much of a crime, so to speak as a as a conventional crime, isn't
1: it right yeah it is it is and and I think we get very comfortable because we think okay, the law corrected itself, right okay, we found we were we managed to correct this big error that might have happened that we might have executed an innocent person uh we feel good about it, but to that person it is a travesty, their lives have changed overnight there and and there is no accountability because the, the lens you are looking at it, at least they were found innocent, they were set at liberty, we corrected a mistake but who is going to be accountable for all of that mistake is unclear, there is no formal mechanism. So yes, to your question of where is the accountability, there isn't any.
0: Okay that isn't that's not a yeah that's not a very uh, happy circumstance now we are running out of uh, time maitri one final question before we wind up do you think if the criminal justice system takes care to assess the mental health history and intellectual ability or disability of someone on trial before passing sentence the number of death sentences uh, would drastically reduce
1: absolutely i think so Because it's not just questions of intellectual disability or mental illness, it's also other mental health concerns that are there, right? Like brain injury, cognitive impairment. I think the number of people who are then found death worthy, then found, you know, worthy of the harshest punishment that we have to give, uh, it would definitely reduce. Uh, Because we have only found 9 out of 83 prisoners, right? And we were very conservative in our estimate. And there were many prisoners for whom we could not even interview the family. So we don't have sufficient information for a diagnosis. So I am absolutely confident that if the courts were to start this, if the courts were to allow a space for this, even if the court doesn't do it, if the defense can present evidence on presence of disability or illness, the numbers would reduce drastically.
0: Right. I I do hope uh, that this report, which is really very, very, very uh, hard reading and also compelling reading, is widely discussed and I hope it will bring uh, into the mainstream discourse both the twin issues of mental health in the prison context as well as uh, the entire discourse around death penalty and and the human dimension and the socio-cultural and the psychological dimension of uh, death penalty as well. Uh, Maitri, thank you so much for sharing your uh, thoughts and insights on this issue and for doing this, uh, leading this report uh, into the public domain. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Sampath.